Water pipes under the sink are still leaking. I don't know why they would have stopped. Or your car still makes that weird clunking noise when you drive it. Or your bills are still due. Or your neighbors are still difficult. And as much as you want to turn around and go right back to vacational bliss, you know you have a job to do. You know you have a life to live. And so you forget about that thought and you press on through the difficulty, through the challenges, because you know it is the right thing to do. Now I admit that this picture doesn't exactly do justice to what is happening in Mark 9, uh, but I think that this kind of reflection can give us a glimpse, a tiny glimpse, into what it was like for Jesus to come down off the mountain that day. In case you're not sure where we are in Scripture this morning, this is the moment that Jesus, along with James, John, and Peter, came down from the mountain. That is the mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus was transformed, where he radiated light, where he met with Elijah and Moses, where God the Father surrounded him in a cloud of glory and spoke words of affirmation. Now for those three disciples who went with him, I'm sure this experience was a gift, as it was a proof that they needed because as the gospel reveals, they had been struggling with the reality of their Messiah's upcoming death. And they really needed assurance that he was for real. You see, they had to be shown that Jesus was and is deeply connected, if not the central figure in their holy book. And so, in seeing Jesus have a conversation with Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, the doubting and struggling disciples could verify that there was a harmony between him and the words of the law and the prophets. But in addition to this, other than this being meant to be a means of strengthening the faith of the disciples, this was also a time of empowerment for Jesus. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying he was lacking anything, but I'm sure the man part of Jesus could have used some encouragement from the Father. And I say this because it is at this point in his life that Jesus begins his journey towards the cross. This is the moment in time where he turns to Jerusalem and begins to anticipate his death. And so when our reading, Jesus comes down from the glorious mountain to be immediately confronted with the same old problems. To be faced with the same old difficulties because alas, his vacation is over. I know in my heart, and maybe even out loud, I would have grumbled. <laughs> I would have asked for at least five minutes of peace. But no, as soon as Jesus returns, he has a lot to deal with. And what exactly is waiting for him, according to this passage, if you look at it? What's, what's waiting for him after this retreat? Another crowd. An argument 
between his disciples, the nine he had left behind, a man seeking deliverance for his demon-possessed son, and in addition to all of that, the public failure of his disciples to perform an exorcism. And you know, to me, all this fanfare, all that's going on, you know what it spells out? Doubt. He comes from, this is my son, whom I'm pleased from the father, to a bunch of people who aren't really sure that he can do anything at all. If we consider the scene in question, I think that everyone that Jesus is confronted with here is doubting him. They are questioning him, criticizing him, not believing he is who he says he is. And I'm fairly confident that the argument between the scribes and the disciples mentioned here had to do with the legitimacy of Jesus, with the argument revolving around the idea that if the disciples couldn't drive out this demon, then he must not have been that good of a teacher. And really, he must not have been the Messiah. And in turn, the disciples must have been questioning the authority that Jesus gave to them to drive out demons mentioned already in Mark 6. But the crowd, or is where I'm from, the gawkers, they call them, they didn't get their show when he was gone. Since the disciples failed, they would have been looking to Jesus for a miracle, a proof through the demonstration of his power of who he was. And well, this poor man with the afflicted son, he would have also been wondering if Jesus would, or rather, if he could do anything at all, especially in the face of the failure of his disciples. All that to say, it's a scene of criticism. It's not really a welcome back party. In today's reading, Jesus has gone from the mountain of affirmation to the valley of confrontation. And this is what Jesus has to say about it in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, this may be a hard one for some of us to take, and I welcome you to challenge it through studying scripture on the subject. But it really looks like Jesus is irritated with people here. His words tell me that he is aggravated and that he is in a position where he has to put up with people. And now I know this may be against some of the ideas we have about Christ. And I'm fairly confident that there are a number of people who would be offended by this idea. But we have to remember especially when it comes to who Jesus is, that occasionally we have to challenge our preconceived notions about Jesus in light of Scripture. That is to say, if we have a picture of Jesus that we have painted, and for some reason we have let false information creep into our understanding, then we need to be humbled. We need to be open to correct it and repaint that picture. And I'm blabbering on about this because I know several people, both inside and outside the church, who, be, who believe that Jesus is only affirming. 
only nice guy. He's kind of the happy-go-lucky, smile-at-you-and-support-you-no-matter-what-you-say-or-do kind of God who almost, in some circles, celebrates in your sin. But the reality is, there is no smiling here. Because Jesus irritated in this passage by the range of unbelief. Jesus is irritated at them, but I think it's also important to remember that he gets irritated with you, and he gets irritated with me also. There are things that I think I say and do that bother him. It's the same for all of us. And maybe you're thinking, who, me? I'm never irritating. Now, I don't want to be picking the speck out of your eye while I have a lumber yard in my own, but there has to, go, there has to be a small chance that this counts for some of you too. Just ask anyone who is close to you, anyone who has to live with you. Ask your wife or your husband or your children or your friends, your coworkers or your parents. There are things that you do that drive someone out there crazy. And sometimes it's justified, but sometimes it's not. But one thing is for certain. When Jesus is irritated, it's justly so. It's for good reason. Now, I know this may not sound entirely uplifting for you, right? But I find it extremely comforting. Because you know what? Sometimes I can't help it. That is, I can't help but irritate others. The weakness in my body and my mind can result in me displeasing. Displeasing people, and worse of all, displeasing God. Now I can give you a number of real life examples of people who I've irritated, and after today there may be a few more, I don't know. But the situations that I'm really thinking of are the ones where I haven't had a chance to talk to people in years. My thoughts are of those who have cut me off, so to speak, who have rejected me, people who I used to be friends with, but now won't have anything to do with me. Now I confess, some of these issues are my fault. I'm not always rejected or abandoned by others because of how right I am. Because sometimes I can be kind of a jerk. That being said, we as a people have a tendency to put out of our lives those who we don't agree with. Or rather, because we tend to see our own side as better. Now it could be something big. And it could be something small. But sooner or later, people can walk out of our lives and write us off as a loss. And it hurts. I don't know if any of you are there, but it hurts. And we can feel a lot of things. But above all, for me, I feel helpless. Because you know, or I know, that I can't be the person that they want me to be. I know that I can't meet their standards. And I kind of have a feeling that the problems they have with me are insurmountable. And maybe this makes you sad. 
I'm sorry to make you sad this morning, but now I'll try to make it better. This is where I try to cheer you up because this is the encouraging reminder that I have for you today. Jesus isn't like that. Praise the Lord. If we are his children, Jesus puts up with us and will continue to put up with us. He bears our inequities. He wrestles with our faithlessness and commits to the person who he's changing us into. That's right, because he is committed to carrying us successfully to the end of the race that he has assigned to us. And in that, I'm reminded of the words of John 6, 38 and 39, when Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus is not going to lose you. If you struggle, if you irritate him, he is still committed to you. Do not lose heart. He is not expecting perfection or perfect faith, but we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So if you're still following along in your Bibles, let's consider verses 20 to 22. Now, in the Gospels, when it comes to demons, they seem to be repulsed by Jesus. That is, whenever he's around, they react somehow. They can't help it. It's almost like they have an allergy to him. In all the demon situations that there are in the book of Mark, the demons have either said or done something when he is present to show themselves to him. And since the unclean spirit is mute, instead of speaking, it rides around in distress because its control over this boy is coming to an end. This demon knows its time is up because Jesus is there. Now, and I'm sorry if I'm telling you things that you, you already know, but I wanted to share this just in case there's anyone out there who is flirting with temptation, who sees something as evil, uh, something that is evil that is something that is maybe appetizing. But I'm reminded here that the business of evil, the goal of the demonic, of Satan, is destruction. And this is something that the world gets wrong. The devil doesn't want to free us from God's oppression so that we can live a life and live it abundantly. He's very much like the demon in this boy, seeking to destroy us. And in that I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There is no good side to evil. The fun that it seems to promote is really just poison. And it wants us to die where God pursues our salvation. Satan wants to throw us into the fire like this boy, but God wants to give us life eternal. Let's never forget that. 
So here comes the part about faith and doubt. And I'll reread the second part of verse 22 and 23 because it's been a while. This is the father of the boy talking to Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. The mistake here is that this man actually questions Jesus' ability. The phrase, if you can do anything, demonstrates doubt. Imagine looking God in the face and asking him if he was really able to heal. He said, hey God, I don't know if you're able. I don't know if you've dealt with anyone this bad before. But if you think you might have what it takes, give it a try. Now as much as I, and I'm guessing everyone else, is tempted to conclude that Jesus is saying, that results rest in the amount of faith of human beings, I'm also reminded of Christ's mass healings and miracles described in the Gospels where people had no obvious faith. It wasn't a prerequisite in some situations. And don't get me wrong, faith is good. It's great. But I don't think our lack of faith hinders God's ability to act. I don't think this verse is meant to make us obsessed positive thinkers or become adherers to the gospel of wishful thinking, but instead to to cause us to acknowledge that God is the author of all things miraculous. Now, I want to get hung up on the word if here for a moment. That's a big word here, if. Because there are a few examples in Scripture where that if, the iffiness, is actually appropriate. When using the word if actually demonstrates faithfulness to God. I'd like to just look quickly uh, at the leprous man. In Mark 1, verses 40 to 42, I'll read the passage. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. If you will, or if you are willing. When the man with leprosy asks for healing, he doesn't mull over God's ability. He is sure that Jesus is able, but knows that Jesus could refuse because it is God's right, it is Jesus' right to do so. This is good. Checking to see if something is God's will is important when coming to him. Another usage of the word if comes from Jesus himself when Jesus prays in the garden about his upcoming crucifixion. In Matthew 26, 39, it says, and going a little farther, he, Jesus, 
fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my wills, but yours. If you can find another way for me to avoid this pain, God, please do it. But if this, is, if this is the only way, if your answer is no, I will still follow you. These are two examples of words of faith directed towards God. In one instance, the desire of the man coincides with the will of God, and Jesus says, yes. In Jesus' prayer, however, in his request to let the cup pass, God the Father says no. And so Jesus submits to the will of his Father, which really is, as we know, obedience unto death. The real question for us here is, will we have faith even if God says no? In the midst of pain, do we still have faith? Or do we think his power is somehow diminished? Or that he is not as good as we thought because of our pain? For now I will call it the faithful if. As in I will continue, I will continue to believe even if I don't get what I want. And one of my favorite examples, like in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when threatened with the furnace in Daniel 3, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden images that you have set up. Back to Mark. Let's get back to Mark. I got a little distracted there. We're almost done. You're doing well. You're doing well. Verses 24 to 7. And more specifically, the sincere statement. I love the statement of the father when he cries out something that seems even foolish to us. I believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying two things at the same time. Jesus doesn't stick his nose up at him, doesn't turn away. Jesus responds to his imperfect faith. I love this. This is medicine for my weary soul. I believe, help my unbelief. As in, I believe, kind of. Please help me anyway. This is a confession of a broken heart someone who is self-aware and a demonstration that God accepts our weak and feeble faith. Now I know that more faith is more better. But what Jesus is demonstrating here is his willingness to work with us even though our faith is small. Even though we don't understand. Even though we have faith in some areas and not in others. For example, and I think we do things like this all of the time, but we can have faith that Jesus died on the cross for us and paid for our sins. But we don't believe that he can save our marriages. We're hopeless. 
We're faithless in that regard. We don't think he can save someone else's or free us from the sins that we are stuck in or mend our other broken relationships. In different areas of our lives, we are just like this guy. And we can and should join him in saying, I believe it. Help my unbelief. So this is the point. Jesus is interested in our humble, sober confessions of tiny faith. Not the outward, prideful demonstration of our fake, great faith. And this 1 Corinthians 13, 2 comes to mind. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Yes, faith is important. But it is something we often need help with. We may never have mountainous faith in this life. But we can have a kind of faith that expresses our dependence on God that expresses our love for him. Finally, the last two verses. This is after the healing. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now there's a lot of direction we can go here when considering what Jesus said. But simply put, He's saying, prayer is the answer to your faith issues. Yes, Jesus was talking about the means in which to drive out this demon. But in my opinion, this is also the solution to all the problems that the disciples have been having. Yes, they couldn't cast out the demon. But they also struggled to grasp Christ's need to die. And I'm sure they also struggle to understand their own need to bear a cross. Jesus' reminder to pray demonstrates the presence of arrogance and the independence in the life of the disciples. And for us, we're reminded when doing things in our own strength, that we cannot triumph without God. For the simple reason that we do not acknowledge that we need him. I mean, think about it. How dare we go at anything without consulting him first? Whether it be our struggles in faith or our attempts to defeat demons, we need Jesus. And this is where I want to conclude today after all that. Because I think the call to pray by Jesus is a reminder that we all need in times of struggle. The call to prayer forces us to our knees to admit our dependence on God. And really when we think about it, prayer is not only about trying to change the outcomes of our physical world, but it's also about changing us. As it is through prayer that God works in us, He empowers us. He corrects us. He heals our hearts. He guides us and reminds us of his commitment to us. His commitment to help our unbelief. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for all that it has to offer. I just pray that somehow uh, anything I've said will land well with the people here. May it encourage and, and may it rebuke where it needs to. Lord, thank you for this chance to uh, delve into your word. Uh, can't say thank you enough. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.